0: Hello. We've heard some pretty hard real talk in the last two episodes. Again, it is never meant to frustrate or depress anyone, but it is clear that change needs to happen. I have loved the discussions and feedback occurring on the podcasts, Instagram and Facebook. I recently saw a comment stating that nurses often chart a rash of negative one, but then sedate to at least a RAS of negative two or negative three. When I surveyed my followers, 91% agreed that this was a thing. I had to hit the brakes hard. Listen, nurses are not malicious and no one is doing this to cause harm. They're also not innately dishonest. So what is going on? After further surveying, I found that 80% of the responders and about 200 people responded. So 80% of those felt that the RAS scores were viewed as subjective or were misinterpreted. 72% felt that there was not enough education about the reality and consequences of sedation. 90% reported emerging delirium during sedation vacations and likely consequently, 81% have had difficulty implementing the A to F bundle on their unit. And 47% of those nurses report that they have more than two patients each. So clearly these mishaps and rascal compliance is not because anyone is evil or lazy. There is a huge knowledge deficit in our community. We cannot turn this ship around until every teammate can see the iceberg ahead of us. We have to support our teams and understanding the why and then have the infrastructure to then address the how. So after all of this frustrating talk, it is definitely time to focus on the incredible good and changes that are occurring. My new friend, Nora, brings the light and the fire as she shares with us her team's new victories. Nora, I'm so excited to have you on our show today. Introduce yourself and who and what you do.
1: Sure. So my name is Nora. I am a registered nurse at a hospital level trauma center in the medical surgical intensive care unit. I've been working there for about two and a half years. It's where I started my career. And yeah, I'm still working there now. So
0: and up until now, what has been the culture and practices in your team?
1: Sure. So I would say, I mean, I wouldn't characterize us as a walking, awake and walking ICU, such as the one you describe in your podcast, but I believe that we are starting to, to move towards that in a sense. However, like many ICUs, the status quo has always really been, you know, if the patient's intubated by default, we usually have them on some type of sedation and, you know, infusion. So, like I said, it seems like we're starting to move in the right direction, which is very exciting, but the culture that I was brought into as a new grad wasn't really this one of, you know, let's get the intubated patient out of bed, let's let the patient completely wake up after we give them the RSI drugs, kind of, you know, intubate them, start the propofol, and that's kind of how how things were, but again, it is moving in the right direction, I think.
0: And it sounds like you're kind of the one shaking things up. What changed your perspective? What made you open to changing things? What gave you the fire to get things moving?
1: Sure. So myself and my coworker, Abby, we had the opportunity to go to a conference in um, September of 2019, and it was our first year of nursing. So we're still pretty new, moldable nurses at this time. And it was all about the A to F bundle and how to... You know what it was, how to feasibly implement it in your hospital where you know maybe this wasn't otherwise, things weren't done this way, and it kind of enlightened us and it opened our eyes because this wasn't something that was taught to us when we first got to our hospital. So we took what we learned and we were presented with the opportunity to be involved in an evidence based practice project where you know, our sedation practices, ICU liberation type things, we're going to be, you know, we're going to review some literature and then try to implement some sort of change through this evidence that we would gather through the literature review. So we wrote a letter of intent basically talking about our experience at this conference and, you know, what what we believe based on what we learned at the conference and what we had seen and some of the literature why we should try to have our project be approved for this grant so that we could try to effectuate some change. And we were able to make it onto the proposal piece of the evidence-based practice project. we wrote a whole proposal along with a pediatric nurse and we were able to get approval. So from there, um, along with other hospitals within the system, that our hospital was under. We did a robust literature review of 28 different articles related to the ADF bundle, analgo sedation, mobility in the ICU, and we came up with a protocol with the help from other stakeholders that we had recruited along the way for the project, other physicians, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, and we created an evidence-based protocol for pain and sedation management in the ICU. So that's where we're at with it now. And at this point, we're really just trying to roll it out and get people familiar with it. And then the hard part, really trying to implement it. And that's kind of how this all started.
0: And I love that you did the literature review because I think that's been what's really been impactful to me as well as talking to survivors. But I previously to my own research, I didn't realize how much evidence there was out there on this? So, what was impactful to you about what you found as you started to to read through the actual research that's been done?
1: So, the thing that was nice for us doing this project is that, like you said, there is so much out there about how you know treating pain before sedating a patient is going to lead in less lead to less ventilator days, which then leads to less. Days in the ICU, less incidence of delirium, better discharge disposition. And then that when you're reducing the amount of sedation, then you're able to mobilize. The patient is awake. They're not delirious. And it's just this domino effect of positive, you know, outcomes. So our issue wasn't really finding the evidence. It was already there for us, pretty much. It was just painting a picture with that evidence and saying, okay. Everything that we have looked at, and this is just a tiny corner of that research, there's so much more. How can we present this to our colleagues and say, we need to we need to make some changes?
0: And that's um, where a lot of people are are listening to the podcast and you've got lots of physical therapists, people that have maybe believed in this for a long time or are newly discovering this. They've got all this fire in their belly and then they're bringing it to their team and They're finding some obstacles. I mean, you alone cannot change the whole culture. So how did your team accept this when you presented it? What has changed their perspectives or how were you able to share this information with them?
1: So, One of the things that, because like I said, one of the biggest obstacles was just getting this buy-in, was trying to figure out how we were going to spread awareness. So in the past, with any sort of, you know, qualitative initiative on our unit, a lot of times there's a bulletin board, there's, you know, different modules online that you can do for education. But when I found this podcast, things kind of clicked, like, because you can listen to a podcast while you're on a walk, while you're running, while you're cleaning your house in the car, and I think that's something that strays people away from, you know, different unit initiatives or education. It's just that I don't want to sit there and read through this article. I don't want to have to, you know, watch this video. It's just not. I'm not really understanding why we're making this change. I'm just doing it because you're telling me to. But with the podcast, we we're like, hey, just just listen to this podcast. Like we gave. few key episodes to our stakeholders and nurses on our unit. So just listen to like these two or three. And then people were just giving us all this feedback, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I wasn't thinking about this type of thing before. I can't believe that this is what ICU survivors go through and that you can walk a patient on a ventilator with a peep of 18, like it can be done. And not only can it be done, but it should be done because it's leading to better outcomes. And I think that having that unique and different way of presenting this information through the podcast really helped get spark people's interest and be like, okay, I'm excited about this. What's going on, you know, with what we're doing in our hospital to try to make this change. And then that's kind of when we segued into the project, like, well, we've done this literature review and this is a protocol we've created and this is what we want to try to make standard practice um, within our hospitals. So that was something that really helped just draw in more awareness, not just with nurses, but with doctors, pharmacists, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Like it's been, it's been a great way to bring everybody in and try to effectuate that change.
0: Do you feel like you had an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary approach prior to this? Like was there strong collaboration between all the different disciplines or has this helped foster that as everyone comes together for this goal?
1: I definitely think it's helped foster it because some of the barriers that we're starting to realize now, as far as like interdisciplinary work goes, is that a lot of times we have orders that the doctor puts in, but they're not really discussed in rounds. There's not like this closed loop. So maybe the doctor thinks one thing's going on, but then in report, the nurse hears this one thing like, oh we talked about in rounds how we're just going to keep, we're going to keep the Presidex on or keep the propofol on or for whatever reason. And it's not really communicated like in a closed loop. So recently we've been talking a lot about how the MAR and our orders are going to help try to drive this change. And from talking to the doctors and other nurses, there's just like this miscommunication it seems. But I think the part of the problem is that, there's not a focus on, like, liberation in rounds. So we're talking about the patient on our unit, the resident presents, and, you know, they talk about major events overnight, what's going on, why they're in the ICU, like their past medical history, and then the plan for kind of treating each organ system. But we don't really say, we don't really talk about like specifically okay the patients on this sedation why the patients on this you know why why are they just on a sedative and why are we not doing you know an agro sedation like we don't really have that as a piece of our rounds
0: you ever talk about delirium like no. are that Do they are they delirious what can we do to clear it out what other exacerbating factors causing it any of that discussion
1: they the only times I've noticed it Discussed, or if I bring it up. So if I say the patient is CAM positive, the patient's CAM negative. And a lot of times it ushers in this conversation between the attending physician and the residents. Like, because a lot of times the residents don't know what CAM, a, a CAM assessment is. So they're kind of like, what oh, is wow. this? then it starts a conversation in rounds about, well, this is what the CAMICU assessment is assessing. This is how you assess it. And this is what it means. And this is what we should do if it's positive. But again, that in my experience, we only really talk about it if I bring it up. If I say, you know, patients CAM positive, patients CAM negative.
0: Which, Nora, you're just reaffirming the power of nurses and all of this, right? Yeah. But we, we've talked about how we have lab results for all of our different organs and reflecting organ dysfunction, yet if we're not talking about CAM, we are totally disregarding the brain. That is one of our only indicators that we have a brain injury.
1: Right. And another thing too, and I work with amazing nurses and we, if we see a low blood pressure we are in the room fixing it. If we see a high blood pressure, we're in the room, we're fixing it. If we see a low potassium, high potassium, we're fixing it right away as we see it. But we don't have that same sense of urgency when we have a RAS of negative four and it's not indicated. And I feel like if we did, you know, we would we would be seeing you know these outcomes that are better. We got it. Right. And again, I do, I do think that that awareness is building. And I think that we're moving in the right direction, but I kind of want to describe it in that way. Like if we are, as ICU nurses, we're always assessing, we're always, you know, thinking like proactively on what we need to do to keep the patient stable, to get the patient better. We should be thinking about that with our RAS goals too.
0: I have seen, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I'm not. A- in the room all the time of the patients anymore. And I'm, but I'm so grateful for the approach that nurses have. They can smell delirium from a mile away once they know what they're looking for and they know why it's so important. So I have nurses coming saying, Hey, their handwriting's getting a little loopier. Hey, they're not answering in full complete sentences when they're writing on the board. Like they can sense the slightest little things, even before they're cam positive, they can see when something's coming and we step back and like, how do we improve their sleep? How do we get these certain medications off? I mean, they are so good. And so nurses, like you said, they're the ones right there. And once they know what needs to happen, they're going to make it happen.
1: Right. It's true.
0: If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change the ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So how how did the team come together and like we did the webinar, how was that received?
1: It was received really well, yeah. So the webinar was kind of, once we got all this excitement about the podcast, we were able to make that work and get you to come for the webinar, which was wonderful. It sparked a lot of conversation, a lot of which was, how can we do this? How can we get buy-in? How can we really make this work? And Again, I don't think that we saw change right away because it was kind of simultaneous with our next COVID surge where we had a lot of patients on neuromuscular blockade, which required deep sedation and, you know, kind of back, backtracking to like, okay, our cutie is really high and we're just focused on what's in front of us and kind of putting that in the back burner. Yeah. Like collectively, I guess.
0: Because these are patients that are really important to apply this approach to. Right. Yet, when you've got a surge and things are really hot, it can be a lot harder to suddenly bring in this huge change. Sure, sure. So I totally get
1: that. But I still think that it was on people's minds because after that kind of, you know, settled down, I was noticing a lot more patients were dangling at the bedside on the ventilator. And I have to give a shout out to our physical therapists, and occupational therapists, who really, I mean, they, there are, li- there's a very small list of reasons why they won't go in and try to get a patient up. And I've noticed it even more with COVID, because in the beginning, when everybody was panicked, it was like, well, what do you mean? Like, we're not even going to talk about mobility right now. A lot of times they were reallocating the PTs and OTs to do different tasks, because at that time, it was like just this crisis sort of mentality. Like, let's just keep these people alive pretty much. But like we had a recent win with a COVID patient, I guess a month ago. And this patient was a larger man, he's 450 pounds and he was intubated and he was COVID positive. And I did not take care of him until I think it was like his fourth or fifth day on the ventilator, but he had been up and walking every day since they intubated him. And when I got to him, I was like, obviously so excited. Cause I was like, this is great that we're doing this with him. Like I peeked in the room at seven in the morning. He's like watching TV and on pretty respectable vent settings. He wasn't like ready to be extubated or anything like that. We were just being proactive and getting him up. And there were so many things that could have been used as excuses to get this particular patient up, like his size, like the fact that he was COVID positive, the fact that his PEEP was, you know, higher than six or eight. But PTOT was in there every day. And then I think that that got the the nurses really engaged and involved that were taking care of him. And the second day that I was there, we had him walk to the glass door and he was playing tic-tac-toe with our residents and our other nurses on the other side. And he was standing there for like 10 minutes on the ventilator. And I remember from the episode with the physical therapist that I had mentioned earlier listening to. Heidi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, or wait, or maybe it was, I think it was with Tara, because she had said that a patient on the ventilator was a one assist. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. And it was really because she just had to make sure that his ET tube stayed in place and his lines were okay. We had like probably three or four people in the room initially, just because we weren't sure how it was going to go, it was yeah. a bigger guy. But we were really just standing there because he had gotten up routinely every day. He had, still had pretty good function, you know, that was closer to his baseline. And he ended up, I believe, one or two days later getting extubated and downgraded. And myself and the occupational therapist that I worked really closely with, this patient, we still talk about it all the time, but we wanted to see him at the step-down unit. And we had, like, planned a time that we were going to go. It was, like, going to be at 1 o'clock at lunchtime. And we're getting ready to go, and he's already discharged home. Right home. Yes. And we were kind of like, well, we were so happy, of course. We're also like, oh my gosh, like I wish that we could have seen him before he left. But he went home. And we hadn't seen that with a COVID patient in a long time, an intubated COVID patient. So that, in that particular case, got a lot of attention on our unit. And then we started to see other patients walking in the room. We had a nasally intubated patient who was walking up in the chair, which is another thing. A lot of a lot of times, the reason for not getting a patient up would be, oh, well, the airway is critical. It's a nasal intubation, but no, we still got him up in the chair and he did very well. And then I'm just noticing it becoming more part of the, the day, like in the thought process with nursing, like even when I get reported nighttime or from the night shift to day shift, like, They'll talk about, oh, like we gave him melatonin to sleep. I think he slept okay through the night, not being on sedation. You know, PTOT worked with him and they dangled. Today we're going to try to stand up or today we're going to try to walk. And it just seems like it's like shifting more in that direction because this patient, this COVID patient, was a huge catalyst and showing people, you know, we, we make these, all these reasons for why we can't get the patient up. And a lot of it is because we're trying to protect the patient. We think that doing this is going to result in a self-extubation or fall or something. But when in reality, the longer we wait, the higher probability is of those things truly happening.
0: I mean, if, if that patient had sat in that bed for a week straight before ever being moved, how can you move a 400 plus pound patient? And especially during the surge and during COVID, there are so many factors that make it really hard to get that many people in there, get a lift going. It just, it takes so much more time and people and resources. And it's so much more dangerous. I mean, if he fell to the ground, how are you going to get him up? Right. And yet that wasn't even relevant because he was never sedated. So you, you guys just intubated him, let him wake up and he, he kept his mind together.
1: I think that, I can't remember if he had to be paralyzed for a brief period of time. I think there was a point where he was on sedation, but then I think what started happening was he was on sedation, but like his RAS was like negative two, negative one. He was following commands. So then I think the nurse was like, okay, well, let's see what happens if we do less. And I was like, okay, he's like just more awake doing the same thing. So why don't we just turn it off? Like, I think that it started off in a normal way, like normal, you know, like standard. The of the, you know, pushing the drugs, innovating the patient, trying to stabilize them. And then, you know, just like knee-jerkingly starting these medications. But I guess the, the medication wasn't started at such a rate that would make him unarousable or unable to interact. Yeah. But when they noticed that he was like calm and following commands, like, okay, well let's try reading it more, reading it more, reading it more. And then all of a sudden he's off of it. And then PTOT orders are in, they come by like, how's he doing? Oh, he's fine. He's like following commands. All right, well let's go in there and see him. And they go in and they talk to him because he's following commands. Let's try sitting up, sitting up and then standing up. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, he's playing tic-tac-toe. Like you did. <laughs> steps. And I think that's the most important thing with anybody that's, you know, hearing these stories and thinking, gosh, like I, I want to, I want things to change, but I don't know where to start. And I feel guilty almost like I kind of felt that way, you know, learning about like what happens to a patient when they're on sedation and for prolonged periods of time and, you know, how much better outcomes there are if a patient is on less sedation and, how do I as one person like change this? And the answer is you don't, but you have to celebrate the small wins. And then eventually you're going to see the culture change. If you just focus on little pieces instead of being like, okay, I just heard this horrible story about this patient who had this terrible experience and nightmare while on sedation. And we can't do this anymore. I'm just like, we have to change. And it doesn't work that way. And I've learned that because I have that mentality. Like, (laughs) And I want to like just figure out what to do about this, right? All
0: the pumps off.
1: Yes, it's like every room ever needs to be oxidation, but like obviously that's not gonna work, especially when that's not already the culture. Mm-hmm. So just start with this one patient. Start with one patient, one nurse, one doctor, and then see where it goes. And people, you know, start to get curious. And then they want to well, how about my patient? What reason do I have not to do this with my patient? You know, so and then- you have
0: such a large patient, all these comorbidities, and you have these good outcomes. Yeah. yeah. How is that not compelling or convincing?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And you started with the why. You started with educating your colleagues about why it should happen, mm-hmm. and then you proved to them it could happen. Right. And I think sometimes we push protocols without explaining the why, mm-hmm. and it makes no sense. Sometimes, the, they don't you know, the it. modules, the... Mm -hmm. reading articles. It's just not real until you hear it from the survivors or you see examples of case studies and you get a whole picture of it, which is what compelled me to start the podcast. But it just reaffirms everything that I thought that providers want to do the right thing. Clinicians are there to get people better and get them back into their lives. So if we just know why we shouldn't do what we've been doing and how to do something different, people are going to be excited about it. And your passion is totally contagious, Nora you are a powerhouse. And I know there's so many of you out there. I've had people reaching out, asking me, how do I start? Where do I get started? This is like, I get it, but I don't even know where to start. What recommendations would you give to them?
1: I would recommend just starting with your own patient. So if you are hearing these stories and you know, you're, you're fired up, you want to make, you know, effectuate change, start with your own patient and, you know, see where it goes. Talk about the CAM assessment in rounds. Say, hey, the patient's RAS goal is ordered as this. Why is that? Or this patient, you know, like, why don't we have PTOT orders? And just like, start with your own patient and then see where it goes. Because, that's what I've learned is the best thing to do. If you start with your own patient and it goes somewhere and then you're handing off to night shift and you talk about what you did during that day and then they're hearing it, then it sort of clicks something in their head and then it has this sort of ripple effect. But I think that definitely just start with where you are and start with your own patient and then see where it goes and then just keep talking about it. And report ask why your patients on sedation you know if they're not paralyzed well why are they sedated do they you know were they agitated is their RAS zero to negative two on this you what's know, causing are... the
0: agitation right are they delirious you know are they in pain or do they need to have a zoom call with their family
1: and a lot of times when you say why, why are they sedated the answer is well they're intubated. Oh, I And then there you go. There's your segue. Like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be on all the sedation. And starting there for me has been, been key, I think. And then just not getting too overwhelmed with like the prospect of this huge undertaking and just celebrating the small wins. Even if it starts off as just having your intubated patient off of sedation and then next time, having them dangle at the bedside with P T O T while intubated. And then, you know, trying to get them up and walking. Because even though you're starting off with this idea, if you're in a culture where it's not like completely embraced, it's going to be hard for you to go from, you know, sedation, clean line, like clean sheets, clean lines, everything looking pretty, to let's get this peep of 18 patient up and walking. Like that's just not possible. So just starting small and then celebrating the small wins is my best advice.
0: I love it. I love it. And I think it is a skill set of, of working people through getting comfortable on the ventilator, working through navigating all the lines, feeling comfortable with that and then assessing how they're tolerating and going through a process. So it is such a learning curve, mm-hmm. but when everyone understands the why, what they're working towards, and when you've seen successes like you have now, that's going to be a huge driving factor. And I think everyone's going to be haunted about anyone that's getting any kind of different treatment after that. And they know that there's a totally different route that they can send their, their patients on. Right. So Nora, did you guys have to drastically change your staffing to make this happen?
1: I would say yes and no, because recently our boss has done such a phenomenal job of making sure that we're um, adequately staffed, especially since COVID started and we got hit with, you know, such high acuity and really needed all the help we could could get. At the time, she created a shift for a resource nurse for eleven to eleven, and having that has really kind of helped us trust in the fact that we have adequate staffing. However. I don't think that having more staff is what resulted in the successes that I described because we were able to do these interventions and liberate early on so that the patient hadn't deconditioned to such a point where they did need, you know, five, six people in the room to help. You know, either get up to the edge of the bed or help calm down as they emerge from sedation in a delirious state.
0: Yeah, definitely. How has this
1: impacted your career
0: and your fulfillment in your career, even during uh, this crazy pandemic?
1: Yeah. So I feel lucky to have had this experience early on in my career. And I think that before, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, how just to navigate your unit as a new nurse and is this what I want to be doing? Like, it's, you know, you're asking yourself these questions, but when I learned about this and I got involved in this project, I was like, this is it because I'm always wondering about the why. And if there's not an answer for the why or a good one, like, I want to figure out, well, why is that? Like, like, let's, let's dissect this more. And I think that, You know, having patients awake and mobilized and implementing, you know, ICU liberation into our ICU nursing care answers the why. We're here because we want to help people get better. And if this is going to help, and, you know, time and time again, the evidence has proven and the patient's stories have proven that this is effective in getting people out, then, you know, that's just it's so fulfilling for me to say i am an icu nurse with that premise in mind
0: and you should be so proud of what you're accomplishing and your whole team keep us posted i want to hear more success stories i want to hear all the stories we all do because that is what is bringing the change yeah
1: anything else you would add uh, i don't i don't think so i mean just i i can definitely sympathize with someone who is listening to this and you know wanting to change but not knowing where to start and i just want to reemphasize, you know you can do this but it just starts with one person and one little change and then it has a ripple effect so
0: and i'm happy to do webinars with any teams that are interested in seeing videos hearing a full explanation i try to condense you know the 57 episodes into a 45 minute webinar.
1: Um, wonderful. I mean, that was such a, I think that was a big, having the webinar was a big turning point for, for us. In my opinion.
0: Everyone's going to have doubts.
1: Sure. Uh,
0: even after the webinar, I'm sure there were some doubts, but almost having an objective third party come in or someone that's done it to s- say some of the hard things to identify some of the problems in the culture where sometimes when it comes from your colleague, it can kind of cause some tension and no one wants to point fingers. But when someone comes in and says, this is a problem. And sure they can get mad at me, but I don't work there. So (laughs) I think everyone was really open and kind. And I'm glad that it was so effective. And I'm happy to um, talk to any team that's interested in hearing and seeing all these stories. Yeah. Well, Nora, thank you so much. This has been incredibly powerful. And we're excited to hear more from you later.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I can't believe I'm on your podcast.
0: (laughs) You're powerful. You've made the podcast. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Thank you.
0: If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.